0: So idea. what do you think of the challenge of hiring developers and product managers these days?
1: That's got to be one of the toughest parts of, uh, of growing a business, especially with the uh, demand for talent at the moment.
0: I couldn't agree more. And that's why at Luxury Escapes, we boost our onshore team with developers from Patona, a fully Australian owned and managed platform that was built to help businesses scale up with less capital, ultimately getting profitable faster. With Patona, they'll help you scale or build your team with incredible talent in places like Sri Lanka, Philippines, or India via a permanent remote staff or contractors.
1: So should I assume that based on um, your enthusiasm, you've been working with Patona and you like them?
0: I actually used to be really skeptical of hiring any developers offshore, but the beauty of Patona is it's owned and operated by Australians and led by Simon Lee, who's built and scaled multiple tech businesses. They so can really trust them to find great talent. We actually started with just a couple of resources and scaled to more than 15 team members. So Petona are perfect for businesses looking to scale. If you're pre-product, they're probably not for you. But they work with smaller businesses as well as big enterprise clients, including Treasury Wine Estates, Accolade Wines, Luxury Escapes of course, Little Birdie, Impos, and Sale. If you're struggling to find and scale a tech team, then go to the Petona website at patona.com.au and click on get started. Hi everyone, and welcome to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir, the only pod that takes you behind the scenes and gives you the inside word on the world of tech and growth from the insiders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of Luxury Escapes, journalist and angel investor. And I'm joined by my great mate, Adir Schiffman, executive chairman of Catapult Sports and Serial Investor. In today's episode, we talk about Nick Scully and why margin is king the upsides and downsides of MBAs, and why did sports stars suddenly become so boring? Welcome back, I dear, episode 26. And we've got so much to talk about today. There's a fighting on what to get in this script because there's so much happening. How was your, you had a big week?
1: I had a big week. I was, um, I want to share this story with you. I was driving in today. And I drive my son to school every day just to fun. Yeah. Like he's in year 12 now and I've done it pretty much his whole life and the drive is um, kind of a 20 to 45 minute drive. 45 minutes. The, depending on the day. So today 45 minutes and don't take this as a criticism because I'm not saying this is a criticism. Of me or, yeah, or of a view, of you, the road view, system? Or, no, or what have I got to do with no, this story? No, I'll, tell you, I'll <laughs> tell you. So I've noticed when I've come in here that you're a bit of a contrarian because <laughs> it's not that busy in your office today. So Thursdays are not compulsory work from office day. So you're a contrarian because it feels to me that you can know what's going on in the work-from-home marketplace by what the traffic looks like in the mornings. And so Thursdays are a nightmare – And it used to be that Wednesdays was the nightmare, but Wednesdays has improved slightly. But Tuesdays and Thursdays have become the nightmare. So I'm pretty sure that people are going into the office on Tuesdays and Thursdays now. But what I have noticed is that once you pass 9am, the traffic drops off rapidly. And I think it's because people are making a commitment and they're saying, if I'm going to go into the office, I'm going to just get in there by 9 and do my stuff and that's going to be my office day. And so if you're driving between 8 and 9 in the morning on a Tuesday and Thursday, you are going to get smashed with traffic. And I think that that kind of correlates pretty closely. And the other thing that I noticed is that there are a lot of big trucks on the road. Yeah. And that does not – and I'm probably going to talk about the results of some of the public companies that have announced you know, their performance for the first half. The sentiment that the economy was cooling – is just not matched by some of the results that we've seen. Other than Godfrey's going broke, but that's, that's a <laughs> perennial issue for them. Yeah. Isn't it? Um, but other than and this, these enormous trucks on the roads, like I think the economy is actually fine at the moment. It's my gut feel the, the, the discretionary economy, like certainly, there was no shortage of uh, of semi trailers and double Bs on on the freeway. Well, it
0: goes to that. There's lots of parts of the economy that are going well, and we've seen interest rates in, – rate, everybody thought interest rates rising from their ridiculous lows of virtually zero to a more somewhat normal level would kill the economy, but it hasn't because there's two impacts of interest rates. There's one – Homeowners pay a little bit more, but they're paying so little, it's sort of normalised. But lots of people have a lot more money because everybody who had cash in the bank is now getting money on that cash. So that money then starts circulating. And the stock market is flying. So people
1: feel rich again because their shares are up. Well, it
0: never didn't feel rich because the government pumped so much money during COVID. There was
1: a period when NASDAQ crashed and tech crashed around the world. About a year ago. People said to me that they felt poor.
0: Maybe it's your mates who are at
1: because And also, they're maybe invested in. Yeah, it's like, a that are Invested in tech. Yeah. yeah that's it. Sp- now, I don't think people, people do not feel rich the way they felt in COVID, but yep. it's a lot that's better right. than a year ago. Like, it, it definitely feels. I think a
0: year ago, there was almost record low consumer confidence. So, this is, we've seen, I think, consumer confidence come back somewhat. Although, we'll talk about the results in a second. They're okay, but there's also
1: some clouds. Yeah, uh, you're, you're right. You're right. On the interest rates, because you, you talk. You're fixated on interest Definitely. rates. Yeah, I didn't want to say that word. But yeah, since, <laughs> since you've said it, I'll say it. Um. Uh, so what I did notice is this. You'll know what I'm about to say. Like, I'm less familiar with this stuff than you are. But if you look at the period before the global financial crisis yep. and after the insanity of the late 1980s and early 1990s, you know, 20% interest rates, which were completely yep. out of control, pretty much interest rates, you could call them 6%. They bump up and down, but 6% might be a typical yeah, kind of average. That's right. yep. And so where we are now is still a bit below the average over that extended period of time. Like interest rates started Absolutely. plummeting after the financial yeah. crisis. And, and it's easy to not either not remember that or just not be aware of it if you're young. And so the question I get, like my, a guy that drives me to the airport asked me this question. He said to me, when do you think interest rates on my six investment properties that I own are going to go back down? That's what he asked me, and I said to him, "I'd probably, if that's the question you're asking, I'd probably be thinking about selling one so or So Your two driver
0: of those. has six investment yeah. properties. How no. much are you paying to get driven to the airport? Yeah, not no. It's
1: not. It's actually cheaper than an Uber. Really? It's cheaper than an Uber in a nicer car. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I'm a bargain hunter. <laughs> I got to get so this guy's he's got, name. He's make it all, his seventh property. He's got all these properties, and. um yeah, he's asked me, I said, I think... Are they gear, they're fairly high. Of course. Geared. I mean, that's, I, I didn't ask him for his financial statements, but presu- <laughs> presumably they're geared to the hilt. And he's asking me, when do I think interest rates are going back down? And I don't have the heart to tell the poor bastard that I don't think that's happening. Like, I don't well, think it's, it's right back down. It's bizarre that everybody just assumes... Oh, when are interest rates coming down? As if the
0: natural rate is one or two percent. That's not the natural rate. The natural That's rate is two percent above inflation. Inflation, because the way the government prints money is around two or three percent. So, natural interest rates in this economy is probably five or six percent, like you said. Sometimes pop up to eight or nine. The notion that we're back at one or two is
1: ridiculous, and people have to stop saying that, yeah. that crap because this is not going to happen. People should print a graph. I say this seriously, not facetiously, because I this is you know we can't know everything. Like this is was was news to me, less. it's not news to you, like you follow this stuff closely, but you print a graph of interest rates from 1970 to the current time and what you'll see is that we just lived through 10 years of insanity. That is a complete outlier. And, like, yes, economics evolves over time and the reason we didn't have a Great Depression is because we pumped we, we, we took some steps in the financial crisis yep. to stop banks going broke. So we avoided the Great Depression. We learnt lessons from the we Great We gave money
0: Depression. to rich people to let them stay rich. I think it was the
1: result there. And didn't let banks go broke sure. once Lehman Brothers went broke. it's debatable if that's a bank. But basically, we didn't let um, the contagion spread through the economy. That's, that's the argument. I believe, we just allowed the
0: rich to stay rich, essentially. Uh,
1: yeah, well, We transferred think, money from poor people to rich people. Is that's a happened. very unpopular sales pitch for politicians of in course. democracies. Yeah. But we stopped a... we stopped. What happened in the Great Depression? From we took, we avoided the risk of that happening again as much as possible. Yep. and so economics does evolve. It doesn't evolve into modern monetary theory, which says you can pump endless money into the economy and not infla- affect inflation. But you know we are getting better at economics.
0: The jury's still out, certainly in the U.S. on that incredible 15 years of money printing, essentially because the Fed the Fed balance sheets exploded. The U.S. debt's like 100 trillion now. The jury's still out. We haven't seen the full cycle yet, in, yeah. in a lot of people's in my view. We have we've to go through a full cycle, a full downturn. It would have been a downturn during COVID, but again, governments lost their minds and and again kept the rich rich. We've never seen and everybody thinks, oh, let's stock markets being high is a great thing, property being high is a great thing. I've talked about this before. It's great if you own that stuff. So if you have yeah. 60 or 70 and you own stocks, that's great. But if you're twenty twenty-one and about to start work and you can't buy amazon and netflix at super cheap rates or buy bhp at a super cheap rate or buy whatever by cole's group at a super cheap rate all we do is keep the rich rich and, and not no, allow young people to, to make money like the
1: rich did 40 or invest, years ago, or invest in sophisticated investments <laughs> all that as well 100 percent. so so i think people my take on this is the reason i was harping on about we get better at economics is, like, we do get more sophisticated and so history doesn't just repeat. Like, it's, you know, I said to you like the March Wayne quote, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. I think that is one of the great explanations of life. And technology has definitely had a deflationary effect because it's improved efficiency and productivity dramatically. But enough of history is similar, especially with the last 50 years, to say what we are just went through was uncharacteristically low interest rates that definitely have n- negative effects as well as positive, and I think governments and we can say central banks would be crazy to race to bring those back. And I don't think they're going to race. And so far, we're seeing. I think Powell has done a really
0: good job. I think he's done a much better job than the RBA did. I think Bullock's shown the right signs. She's been pretty pretty restrained and and basically told people last week interest rates probably aren't coming down for a while which is the right thing to say and there's people like Terry McCrane who's lost the plot now who's saying they should be dropping rates So there's lots of people lots of cheerleaders now for dropping rates but really um, Bullock's done I think Michelle's done a really good job I think Powell's done an incredible job in the face of now you've got Trump having a go at him so I think Powell's done a really good and Powell could go down alongside Paul Volcker who's that fantastic Fed Reserve Chairman who raised rates to 17% in 1980 and really created that great economic boom uh, on the back of responsible monetary policy. So I think Powell and Bullock to probably a lesser extent, but Bullock still
1: has done a, a pretty good job so far. And you'd love this topic. And also, I think when you think about this, about property prices, there's no inherent reason that property prices should be rising 7 to 10% a year. I mean, you buy a house, you live in it, that's a home. There is no inherent reason that that asset class should be rising 7 to 10% a year. It's obviously it's a heavy part of it has been um, immigration into Australia like that's a, it's a pretty big thing. You want to get me started on property prices? No, but um, I I don't want to get you started on property prices. <laughs> You're about to but, get me started. But and I'm not I don't want to argue about what they should be, what they could be, yeah. what they might be, but the idea that property prices would rise rise 7 to 10% a year, which is kind of what they've done, is perverse in the sense that you might argue a company's stock price should rise 7 to 10% a year because that company is it's based on earnings growth. Yeah, it's earnings growth, improving its productivity, improving its output. The property is not. The property, property is just reflecting the wealth of the people around everybody it. Everybody forgets that. Property should rise, essentially, at
0: GDP. You can argue GDP is a bit of a flawed metric or, plus, um, or
1: inflation. In, plus some immigration. Yeah, but, no, but
0: immigration is built. GDP is based on immigration. No, that's
1: true. That's a good point. And also, you should be um, resisting some of the supply and demand um, inequalities of immigration by building more properties, so GDP growth is made up of, effectively, population growth, yeah. immigration, no, you're right. you're and, and
0: productivity growth. So let's assume that that gets factored you're into GDP. right, which is
1: why you and I often talk about, like, immigration-adjusted GDP, which is negative, which is often zero negative, or negative growth in exactly, Australia, Exactly, per right? capita. Yeah, per,
0: per capita GDP. So if you look at the reason why property's gone up so much more than GDP is because, because of bank debt. As you go back to our previous conversation, as banks have lent more money, and they've got bigger balance sheets now, and more debt on the balance sheet, and it's gone straight to property prices. There's no... There's no great mystery behind it. Everybody just looks for, oh, it's, it's councils, it's immigration. Yeah, the council stuff doesn't help, but ultimately property is only risen because people can spend more on property, and people only spend more on property because the bank will lend them yeah, more. You, people will pay every last dollar that these idiot banks are lending them to buy a property. That's exactly what people – that's what – when you put your hand up in an auction, they'll bid up to that.
1: So yep. there's nothing else. It's yep. purely
0: banked down. That's basic Austrian school of economics that has been right for pretty much every recession we've ever
1: had. So – this is going to sound like a very old-fashioned back-in-my-day comment. <laughs> but I do think Australia was a nicer place when it was a bit poorer. Like, when, when I was growing up, when you were growing up, like, Australia was not this rich. I mean, yeah. I remember people, yeah, people were not driving around in European cars. People were driving around in yeah. Fords and Holdens, which were tariff to the hilt. And a BMW and 3 Series was like a fancy car. A fancy car. And, like, I remember, I knew one guy, one dad who had a Porsche. Oh. And there was this joke about him. I'm going, tell you the, I'm going to tell you the joke. I want to tell you the guy that the joke was... What's the difference between this guy and, oh no, I think I'm going to say it more generically. What's the difference between a Porsche and a Porcupine? What? A porcupine has the pricks on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad joke. Uh, well, you might know, substitute a few other kind of products from the Everyone I know drives a Porsche because, you know, <laughs> like they've gone and made mass market cars and everyone just goes and leases expensive cars, right? But I definitely think, like, there was some – look, it's rose-coloured glasses of the past, but there yeah. was something nicer about Australia when it was not – as rich and as flashy as it is now and it was a more understated country. It's definitely I, changed.
0: The other thing I like about called the eighties and early nineties when we were growing up was Sports stars were real stars. I talk about this all the time. Sports stars, so think about tennis. You had McEnroe, Agassi, all yeah. those guys. Footy, you had Lockett, Dunstall. And in the NBA, you obviously had Jordan. But you had a whole suite of players around Jordan, yeah. like Pippen, and and all these guys. Ewing. I can think of 50 or 60 NBA. And you obviously know all these guys now, so it's a bit different. But for the average non-insider like me, I can think of a handful of NBA players now, maybe four or five, but mm-hmm. it probably stops there. Or I could think of 50 from the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And... And I was just thinking about what's the reason for that. And you look at the tennis, and I think the reason is any time a sports star speaks out about anything, you just get criticised by the media, by the press. There's just no personalities are allowed to to be created now because there's just this homogenous, this homogeneity around around stars. You say anything off the beaten track. If you imagine you were a McEnroe now, you just get what happened to Novak when he tried to talk about stuff, and he just gets criticised. Well, there
1: there two counter arguments to what you're saying. One is you may know all of those sports stars back then because you were a kid. And when you're a kid, you're more in love with – Maybe. You think athletes are kind of this special creature, basically, and, like, not of the earth like we are. But the other thing is there are some athletes that are outspoken. Like, Kyrgios is just a worse version of McEnroe, isn't he? Like, le- less ability than McEnroe. <laughs> but same so – lots of ability, yeah, but not, not, are, Ma- yeah, not McEnroe's category. He's curious, yeah, but but one. He's is outspoken, and he, yeah. and, and he is good for the sport. Oh, I love Kyrios. Because yeah. of – his um, lack of, let's say, chemical balance inside his brain, okay? Yeah. So whatever's going on there is probably not good for it's him. He's a
0: super nice guy, like a super generous guy. No, that would not surprise stuff. me at
1: all. But whatever's going on in his mind, I think, is not good for him. I mean, he should get a coach for a start, but it's good for the sport. It brings people to the sport. People Absolutely, love the 100%. sport because of him. It is much better than robots. Nobody wants to watch robots play. Ultimately no. – But they do. That's what they are now. Sport is, an, is a form of entertainment. It's not about playing the sport – and people just want to be entertained, and I, I don't think that's happening as much as it used to. I think because of the,
0: and you, you be you're right. a bit conflicted here because you obviously work no, with the sports league in the world. I mean, athletes buy nothing from me; like the teams buy stuff, right? Yeah. And so well, I'm criticizing the teams. I'm not criticizing the athletes. athletes. Can't
1: be themselves because teams yeah. and leagues prevent it. I'm not look. I'm not sure that teams and leagues are specifically preventing it. The truth is, this athletes are very aware. Young athletes, like teens, twenties are very aware of social media. Yeah. They're very aware that if they – there's this, like, fine line, which is you want to stand out. So if you say nothing, then you'll be a no-one. Yeah. But if you stand out in the wrong way, even for this, a fraction of a second, that could be the end of your public career. Yeah. It is a very delicate line to walk. And, you know, you saw with Colin Kaepernick taking the knee. we Let's yeah. not get into the politics of that. But, you know, that was a very dangerous step to take for yeah. his career – his career he it was, it was not, struggling at the time yeah he was, his career wasn't over before that but it wasn't yeah. like he went from this stellar career to zero cuz he took he was the super bowl knee. a couple of years before wasn't he so but you know what kind of you know, i think the thing that kind of saved him reputationally in that sense yeah. was nike running ads 100%, with him the taking greatest, the knee. they got yeah, behind pace. him and they kind of took A lot of the controversy of which side do you fall out – now, obviously, the Republicans and that kind of – that side of politics still hated him for taking the knee. But I think Nike went and stood behind him and made sure there was a safety net under him so he couldn't fall too far. But if they wouldn't have done that – that was a couple of years later, though. So it wasn't – definitely wasn't straight. It was well after he'd retired or eventually after you hadn't – that was after he settled with the league. Yeah, he hadn't played for a few years when they did that. You're right, but – but I think, you know, athletes doing stuff like that and taking strong positions, you know, everyone talks about, I don't know the name of the guy that stood on the podium at the Olympics and raised his fist in support of black power. No, the it was in Mexico
0: City in 68. Was it was okay. Tommy Smith and someone else. And the Australian guy was Peter Norman who came second between them well, and stood go. with you them on the podium. The,
1: you know all the details. He and passed away really sadly about maybe seven or eight years ago, I think. So doing – so I think um, you could get away with doing that today because – that is a bit of a coarse celeb, that that movement, right? Yep. But at the time, it wasn't. No, hundred percent it wasn't. And if you would stand, if you would do something that was as countercultural as that was in the time, yep. if you would do something that countercultural today, your career would be over. It would be over. You could do. You could put the fist up in support of Black Lives Matter because that yep. is mainstream now. That yep. is supported. But it wasn't then. And so I don't know. I can't think of an equivalent that you would do today. Mm. But if you would do something like that today, that countercultural, you would be cancelled into oblivion today. I'm not talking so much about those, I think, powerful messages. And I
0: think the Collins message was incredibly powerful and he was super brave to do it. But yet yeah, more the... Almost the pest soul, the Charles Barclays, the John McEnroes, the even though like, but the Agassiz... Like it's helped Kyrios's career
1: to be John, the John McEnroe of the this age. It helped, it's helped his career. A hasn't yep. helped him win matches. But the thing that Mac, what, there is a McEnroe can pull it off. He won. It's because he was so good. Yeah,
0: he just kept winning everything. I think. And the, the great and the same with, with the sort of drug offences. The worst thing you want as a star is to have a, any sort of it could be drugs or something that can go wrong. And Shane warns the classic example. Remember Shane had that diuretic issue. He never got. Yeah. He, had that. he was banned for a year and he his mum and all that stuff the, the late great Shane Warne and he came back as an incredible player and all was forgotten as long as you can come back and perform well, that's all true. the bad stuff gets that's forgotten You've got to true. perform
1: although um, although I just hit me with a, I just can't believe I've had a mental blank hit me with the Tour de France Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong. Well, he ain't coming back. Like, he could ride as fast as the wind. He could overtake the speed of light, and people would not support him coming back to the
0: sport. Lance Armstrong was proved to be a 10 year fraud. Although, there's arguments that everybody was
1: doing it back then, so he sort of had to go along. But. um, What about these new. Do you know about these. uh, We'll move on to business topics, but. Well, this is kind of a business topic. Yeah. Do you know about these games? I don't know what they're called, where you're allowed to take any performance enhancing substance that you want. No. Oh, they're they're released. Do you you know about this? Yeah. Is that maybe that's what it's called? Mike knows about this, and yeah. so basically I know everything. Yeah, so you yeah. the enhanced games. Basically, it's just win. Yeah, go nuts, do whatever you want. Yeah, just win. What do you think about that as a comment? A, a, a plan. I've thought about that in the past. There's an argument that well,
0: at least you're on a, fa- a level, level playing field. Yeah. But
1: I think you should be encouraging people to do things that are you know pretty horrendous for their bodies. It kind of got kids on, watching
0: this. Depends what your view is on. Again, remember when in the, in like I remember when steroids became a thing in like 1988. Ben Johnson was the famous anabolic steroids. Right. That's when it sort of drugs really came. It was obviously yeah. happening in 84 and the Russians and Carl Lewis allegedly and all that stuff. Uh, but 88 and Ben Johnson, who was the Canadian sprinter who famously beat Carl Lewis, did I think 9.79, so smashed the record. Yeah. Uh, and then famously, like a week later, was done for. Usually now, these that happens like months later. This yeah. happened a week later, and it was the biggest news. And it was I remember I was I was on holiday and there was a doctor there and I was talking about how an, anabolic steroids were so bad for you. The question is. Are they... Maybe they are. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. You're a doctor. But how bad are these performance enhancing... No, you don't
1: want to take these things. But I think there's a bit... What about like like an EPO? Is that bad for you? Yeah, you can have have heart attacks from that. It makes makes your blood thick. Fair enough. And so I think... Firstly, the reason that Ben Johnson's story was so big is you have to remember that time, there was no social media, there was just mainstream media. And so what would happen is a story would appear and the entire media would be blanketed with one story and so everybody would have this same shared experience of this one big media story. This is what I think. These things are not good for you and they should be banned and, yes, it is imperfect being able to catch these people and, therefore, some people are going to win that are taking banned substances and it's not fair but I could just take the same argument and apply it to life. We should just not have laws because, like, don't have speeding laws because lots of people get away with speeding. So just get rid of the laws and let everyone speed because it's not fair. Well, that is how laws work. What you're sen- what you're doing is you're sending a message to society saying this is what is acceptable in our society and this is what is not acceptable. And I think that is a core part of society. I think speeding is a bad analogy because speeding impacts other people, whereas
0: drugs probably just impact the person taking them in in negative way. But Can I just make it while we're talking about sport? uh, I I do usually that Melbourne half marathon, which runs around Melbourne. Every city has a marathon, and I'm not not sure if you knew this, but basically every marathon has been outsourced to. A private company like IMG, which is the big management company, yeah, I know you know, about Melbourne that. one. Yep. I presume there's someone does New York, someone does London, whatever. And usually Melbourne one. Melbourne's a pretty boring marathon compared to like New York and London. It's pretty flat. No one really watches you. You don't really until t- you get to the MCG, which is the end, mm-hmm. which is great. There's like ten thousand people in there. But till then, it's kind of a nothing. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to New York, where my friend slashed around New York a few months ago with his wifey, and they had there was like twenty people deep the whole course, which sounds yeah. incredible. So usually the marathon, we might sell out like a month before. Last year it sold out maybe six weeks before the half sold out just before which I'm fine this year it's sold out already this is 10 months in advance mm. i think what the hell's going on here like both the half and the so i'm now on a waiting list i've never been on usually i book it in like july because you don't know if you're going to be around or whatnot so i usually book in july it's now sold out both the half and the fourth i think what the hell's going on So i put myself on the waiting list and then they're trying to say, well, if you want to do the marathon, you can pay more. So you can join this very important running thing, which costs like a couple hundred bucks, for, which oh, gets you nothing. Or you can do our other races because this same company runs a bunch of other races. So if you want to get in Melbourne, you've got to do these other four. So you basically got to, they basically just increase the price from, it was pretty expensive at 150 bucks. Now like for, for the average person to do a marathon, it should be at it. Running should be a sport for everyone. And they've made this now, effectively charging three, $400 to do a marathon. Bear in mind, the streets are owned by the people. This company comes yeah. in, the idiot councils give these, as usual councils, stuff things, things up. The council goes, you, we can't be stuffed running this marathon. You guys run it and you can take all the money and pay us something. Yeah. So this come, IMG is making an absolute fortune by taking the streets that are owned by the people and renting it back
1: to us and not even letting you do it. Like you shouldn't, this is good So Because you think they sold a whole lot of, a small number of cheap things and then they've kept the rest back? 100%. percent and- they
0: just obviously limited it. they probably sold a fraction of the tickets. So they I'm not so. sure
1: if you know this, but I'm going to tell you because I think you might find it useful. If you pick any other weekend, you can run on the same streets for free. Yeah. And no one is going to charge you one cent for You can actually a run, run
0: and I've done it before. Once I've, I forgot to do a run, it wasn't a marathon. I just ran it. I ran, I just didn't have a number, but nobody ever stops you. Yes. So you can sort
1: of still do it. What does the number do? Does it make you run faster? Well, It gives you a time, and it, you feel a bit more part of it. But you can so, also you can also get a time on your watch, I think. Yeah, but yeah, you have to official, the number. You have an official time. Uh, but you can uh, look but, at your watch. You got official time. Running, running. Look at my wrist. There's my official time. There's also running. like if you want to qualify. Oh, I can other give you, I draw stuff. a number on you if you want. If it's going to make you run faster, I'll draw the number on you. What number do you want? 7 oh <laughs> seven. I'm actually doing.
0: Um, <laughs> I'm actually doing this. My favourite run in Melbourne is called the Run for the Kids. So it's great yep. for Robert Royal Hospital Appeal, and it's all around Easter, around the appeal time. Uh, Transurban gets behind. The Herald Sun gets behind. It's a really great event. And the reason I love that event so much is, A, it's a great route. goes through the goes under the tunnel over the Balti Bridge. But because it's not – so the marathon has the half, the full, the 10K, mm-hmm. the 5K. This is basically just one di- – maybe there's a shortage, but everybody does this sort of 15K distance. It's a bit like the City Surf in Sydney, that yeah. iconic
1: event. That's a great event. So this is the Melbourne version of City Surf, really. Well, I don't good. want to be the one because I'm – when we sit here, I'm always the one that says – it's not quite a match for Sydney, and you know I love Melbourne, but yeah. City to surf, especially Heartbreak iconic, Hill, yeah. that, that's unbelievable, yeah. right? So it's not—it's probably not as iconic as that. I've never it done Melbourne. it; I don't think I ever will, but maybe I will. Yeah. If, so, I'm, if I feel like my—I want my life to come to an end, and I want to have a heart attack on a road, I'll probably do it. Uh, <laughs> pretty sure you won't. Have, I think probably less likely to have a heart attack if you're running, but um okay. So
0: <laughs> I did last year. I did, I got my best time ever. I did about four minute thirty five k. So this year for the first time ever, I've qualified for the preferred start time. Oh, so there you start go. Front. Not elite with like the. The global guys, but prefer So I'm in mean, the sort of front bit, so you're I'll be smashed by long all those guys.
1: Now, what's that? You're, you're playing off the
0: long exactly. The, uh, playing yeah. off the whites or the yeah. blues, or whatever you got <laughs> to call it. So uh, we're running that. That's Usually, impressive. I got a few mates who are much faster, much much faster. I mean, they're always off that. So my friend Bird's Nest does because they some wear shoes. Three
1: That's why they're running faster.
0: Well, yeah, because you've seen that Nike shit. The Nike is the Vipers. Oh, and the Nike have even a newer version of Vipers
1: that take. 30, 40 seconds of chaos, apparently. It's the one that Kipchoge did the one that was about marathon. I, in. There might be a hierarchy when you run a marathon, which is amazing shoes, shoes, <laughs> your feet. I actually run faster now with no shoes than when I had shoes. It's
0: amazing. And obviously, no injuries and all that stuff. It's so. incredible. Remember, we didn't. We wrong. never used to wear. No one wore shoes hundred years ago. They
1: ran without shoes. No so no one wore shoes a hundred years ago. I don't. You should look at some photos from a hundred years ago. I'm pretty sure I saw people in shoes. Well, there, was, there was. You four, mean two million years four, ago? No, th- you th- mean when we were swinging in the trees, we weren't wearing shoes? I for agree with that. Thousands of years,
0: nobody wore shoes, and then for like a couple of hundred years, people wore shoes. Shoes so we, are
1: thousands of years old, but They like, were wearing not like, shoes but in the like Super thin,
0: like not, not the big doing.
1: Nike Air thing with nitrogen in them. As you know. What they weren't doing is running for leisure. They were running because there was a lion or a soldier behind them. It was we a way to try and get away from dying. When was the ancient Olympics? That was a while ago. The that was Greece, ancient Greece, three thousand yeah, well, years. They ago. Run, they were running for More leisure than there. 3, that was competition. A That's true. And you know, I'm a bit being a bit facetious because <laughs> in ancient Rome. One of the highest paid people, who they say would have been a billionaire today, was a great chariot racer. Oh, really? Who was unbelievably successful and had the intelligence to retire (laughs) in his 30s, I think he retired, because... The life expectancy of charioteers was not great because <laughs> yeah, the chariot be. would tip over and the horse would run over the top of them from <laughs> yeah. behind, and so because you know if you were leading, every other horse would just run over you. And I, yeah. my guess is that they steered the chariots to run over you if you were a good racer. <laughs> and so, the yeah, he retired. And I think he would be the he would have been the equivalent of a billionaire. So they did yeah. have they did he have, have a line of chariots that he sold. He, I don't know what he did, but I think his life was pretty good. Like definitely, <laughs> if anyone had hot water, it would have been him. So. Um, I'm gonna can I just change the topic and say, I can't believe we've taken this long to mention how I'm gonna say fortuitous because I don't want to blow our own trumpet too much. <laughs> we will we have been. One two weeks ago, you talked about how overvalued Atlassian was in your eyes, and you yep. copped what I think was some criticism on LinkedIn, but you took very well. But I think people I wasn't, people okay. continue to misunderstand your comment about a company being overvalued. They don't understand it's discreet from Commenting about the quality of the company yeah. and the quality of the founders. There's no yeah. connection between those yeah. things. So, anyway, you, you made some very, very good points about Atlassian. Two weeks later, it's down 20%. It's down $20 billion. So, it's actually lost
0: more value than everything but the top 15 Australian companies by market has lost more than Coles group in value. You should have
1: done the lead in because I said down 20%, which sounds dramatic, but you <laughs> gave the old down $20 billion. Yeah. That should be where we cut. We should have cut to the break and just said that which, who's down $20 billion in the last two weeks. Thanks to Adam Schwab. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like to think I, uh, I moved that market, but
0: so oh, that was a they, good call. They delivered some results that pretty much fell exactly how we, we thought it would. Actually, down another percent today, so probably down a bit more than twenty billion. But they essentially, like when we talked about, the customers aren't growing. They barely grew the customers again. Their revenue was below expectations at sort of twenty percent. It is a
1: contrarian call. So the thing is, people might say, "Well, isn't it obvious it's overvalued?" But it's not because most of the investment banks have it as a buy. Some of them have got it at twice its current price as a price. So it is a contrarian call to say that Atlassian is overvalued. And, you know, you've been wrong for a while on that. But in the last two weeks, it was a good call. And last week, we talked about Maya. This is your call. And Maya is, you know this company that people don't understand what good economics it actually has now. Literally the day the podcast drops, the stock rises 10%. <laughs> I think it released results that day. Yeah, so exactly. It was. But, you know, that is also a contrarian call because that stock Absolutely. was down 50%, right, over the course of 100%. the last 12 months. So I think we got to start... A fund just between us contrarians fund. which is the contra- yeah the contrarians fund Adam is contrarians fund and we' just got to put money into what we say which well, is to show you that we're not
0: always right so I made a and I think we I will be I will be right at some point but Setire, which is a company that I strongly question when Ruslan came in and Ruslan sent us an email yesterday saying what's going on with Setire? it was up 30 percent yesterday they allegedly doubled their profit uh, I remain very skeptical of this business The CEO found us doesn't, you don't sell half your stake unless you think there's some issues there. The revenue rose 89% or something. Yeah, they did increase marketing this time, though. So I suppose the last half... 89%!
1: What, the
0: whole thing is, I've never seen anything more dubious in my life.
1: Well, I don't think... So I'm, unless at least a good say, business. Every time like, you say dubious, I'm just going to say, I've never seen anything more inexplicable. Yeah. Because I, I don't. I've looked at it, and I feel like I can't understand it well enough to understand it. But also, I can't find anything in there that I say this is fraudulent or dishonest. I just think it's inexplicable. In fact, I emailed Arian, who's one of the really good retail analysts at Baron Joey, and um, I said to him, he put out a report on this, and I said to him, if you can explain to me how this business works, I will go and wear a T-shirt that says Arian is the greatest retail analyst in Australia. Because that's the problem. It's inexplicable to me, but I'm not prepared to say it's fraudulent. It's just inexplicable. I think, well, I'm not going to say it's fraudulent, but I will, if this share
0: price is within 95% of what it currently is. So, this is what I think happens. I think. Well,
1: that, that, just with that one sentence, if you do not find a way to short this stock, you're crazy. In fact, <laughs> let's go and find a way to short it because I'd rather like, I'd rather go down fighting yeah. than say, oh, we knew, we knew it and we didn't do it. <laughs> so, we've got to do this. We've got to do the Adam and Adir. Contrarian fund. <laughs> I think what happens is Dean Minz, the founder
0: CEO, sells most of the rest of his stake. He's still got. he got like four hundred million bucks worth. Now he's got. He needs to offload this. Yeah. The CFO needs to offload his equity, and then I think we start seeing the walls coming on this thing. And as I said I, we've run a business like this. Every other business. Were well, you like growing
1: eighty nine percent top line?
0: No. Well, he is. Well- he Alleg- is. Allegedly. He actually doubled that, doubled marketing. So you double marketing, you can probably double your sales. So that, that's not surprising. What's surprising is he's doubled
1: EBITDA on, on, in a sector that no one makes money. I love the way that you say you just double your marketing, and you double sales. I mean, I'd love to have your level of confidence on the correlation between marketing spend and revenue. Well, we were up, actually, a shout out to, to our marketing, well, our whole team, we were up year on year.
0: I think 70% in oh, Jan. that's fantastic. That's that coming off a bit of COVID impact. So it's a, it's a bit gerrymandered. Yeah, but Jan, but as in Jan 2024?
1: 2023. Well, Jan 2023 was not... There was... Weren't you booming little, in Jan
0: 2023? Well, not as much as 24, but there was a little bit of COVID res- residual impact. Certainly December up 50%. That was definitely COVID impacted. There was just no. the last vestiges of this high flight cop. People weren't stricken with COVID it was just flight staff there's a few things and now we're seeing flight costs come right down which yeah. is really sparing oh yeah that makes generally. sense
1: that makes sense
0: so yeah and our marketing is only up like 10 percent. so we, we sort of that 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 that's different but I don't think that 89 percent revenue growth yes it's respectable. when you double marketing in there's something it's the EBITDA that's that's just ridiculous in that business you're
1: not sure how they're making that kind of money yeah, we
0: know they do the capitalization ruse which i don't know why But they are I, how is ASIC not
1: pulling them up on right, the capitalization but they are generating thing? free cash by the way i want to there's ways to generate free cash when you're No, know like, you can work with it uh, listen i agree but i maintain what i said which is i find it inexplicable but it might be true it might be true um they've got auditors yeah i think the order has been in order for about two or a part of like two years or something right, well but what firm is auditing them it's a mid-market thing. I, forget, I, forget, I don't want to name it because it's one of those mid-market firms. Right. So um, I want to say this as well, though. You know how we were talking about capitalisation of um, Our topic. R&D? Yeah, yeah. It, it does it, – so I kind of went and hunted this down after we had a long chat about it. In the US, there is some mandate that they have to capitalise R&D as to. well. Yeah, they have to, a certain portion. But when they report, yeah. most of them try and – restate it yep. as non gap. They do the opposite I mean, the to opposite, Australia. Make it look worse. Yeah. They try to so, – because investors in the US like really do not like um, that capitalization yep. So, yeah, they mandate it, but like they – I think smart
0: investors to, just to sort of back it out here anyway. My, uh, my sister actually, who's an accounting teacher, said, oh, I heard your capitalization talk was really good. So, are yeah. we going to tick from the accounting teacher? Well,
1: that's good. Your whole, your whole family is very supportive of this podcast. Which my mum was saying to me – I think it's so
0: important th- – my mum was saying to me yesterday, uh, talking about your sophisticated, our sophisticated investor stuff with Gabon a couple yeah. of weeks ago, she said, oh, idea, did, was starting to sound like you. Uh, she didn't mean it as a <laughs> it's compliment. Contagious. <laughs> like, it's it's, it's it contagious. It wasn't said in a good way. Like,
1: well, maybe, maybe occasionally you're onto something. And I, I, <laughs> I catch it. But um, my mum said to me the other day, Oh. I've been very busy, so I'm finally catching up on your podcasts. Yeah. I think she said to me, I don't listen to all of them, but like, I just picked the ones that I think are going to be really <laughs> interesting. She's actually very supportive. I can't knock her. Well, I'm, I'm, tell- I'm going to get her onto this show one day, yeah. okay? She's going to do a 10-minute segment, and we can take, confront her face-to-face. Um, I, I will say another company that we talked about, so we should go back and talk about like, things we got right and things yep. we got wrong. Step one, remember we spoke about yeah. the underwear? I think I'm wearing them now. And so you were very bullish on them. My and friend's I said, a booty. I was wearing a booty T-shirt. Well done. Um, I said, I love the economics, but I'm not sure how their world will be post-COVID. Yeah. Well, the answer is their world is very good post-COVID. Right. They're still holding on to their 80% gross margins. Yeah. They're, they're growing their earnings. They're generating some free cash. The founders, 100 and twenty odd million shares, which is sixty or seventy percent of the yep. company, is now worth about one hundred fifty million dollars. Yeah, I'm not commenting on the valuation. Like, I don't think they're a cheap company with where they're sitting no. now. But they've gone up four x since we had the conversation. Four x. Yeah, they were virtually down to, to cash value. Yeah, it's way too cheap. And so okay. I think that um, I think we can tick the box on that one as well that right. we kind of picked.
0: One of the guys, Ian, who works in our um, corporate business travel team, he only wears step one.
1: He heard the show and he goes, oh, I wear nothing else. Is he happy that they're making 80% gross margin selling to him? He
0: doesn't have a view on the margin, I don't think, but he loves the product.
1: I mean, 80% gross margin. Like, I'm very aggressive with gross margins on direct-to-consumer, yeah. but maybe I'll try and hit 70%. 80% that's is insane. next level, that's right? higher that's than software. LVMH. That's software yeah. margins. Yeah. It's it's actually – like, you can't make a great argument that that business is worse than a software business when you can be hitting 80% margin you know know who's
0: selling got, direct. You're the only business that's got higher margins than software, or the only one I can think of. Go on. Uh, this is from the acquired – yeah. Novo Nordisk episode a couple of weeks ago was is pharmaceuticals. Oh
1: no, but the R&D cost and is then So you back in R&D,
0: Yeah, when well, you're back in that goes like 13%. But yeah, like, no one are talking
1: about, you know, the 2 billion dollars they spend trying to develop a drug that fails phase 3 yeah, no, trials, right? 100%. So that's a different business model. Yeah. By the way, do you know most of the R&D tax incentive money in Australia, you know, the grant that they yep. pay back for R&D. So we should say you go and if you've got R&D that qualifies, which nobody can work out what qualifies anymore, maybe yeah. maybe the whole of the software industry doesn't qualify. Nobody yeah. knows, right? Yeah. So you basically get back 50% of the qualifying cost yeah. as, a, as a rebate. Do you know where a huge chunk of that money goes? Maybe I would say most, but I'm not sure it's a most, but a huge chunk. No. My understanding is it's overseas companies, drug companies, running clinical trials in Australia. Really? Yeah, that's my understanding. I had no idea. But- yep.
0: That yeah. sounds bizarre. That sounds like a misuse of the R&D. It should be going to Australian. I though. think
1: that whole pro that whole program is completely shambolic. Like, you know, I was heavily trying to restructure that program during COVID. Oh, no, I didn't know. No. Yeah, I was like quite outspoken, and yeah. I wanted them to um, be paying it quarterly, and I restructured it and provide clarity to software. The challenge is it's administered by the ATO, which means it requires annual returns yeah. to get your money, and that means you can't administer quarterly because yeah. you don't know what the annual return's going to be. know, anyway, you know, there's... There are um, – there's R&D tax incentive lenders yep. that are generating two or $300 million of revenue or something. Really? Like that. Yeah, it's a big – it's actually a big industry. Because yeah. they go and give $10 million – they go and say – So what well, happens if you don't get yeah, – they, they assess it for well, you. They got, they're probably secured over your business is my guess. But like yeah, – so they're charging, I think, 15%. Yep. And the beauty of it is they give you $10 million, let's say, at the quarter. They give you money every quarter, every month. Or let's say $1 million. Yeah. The beauty is you can go and spend that one million dollars on R and D, so you increase your claim. Like <laughs> yeah. they're actually driving up the size of claims. Yeah, I do know one firm. Well, it's a great
0: way to get finance because most startups can't get finance for for local or yeah, money. So to it's a great 15, way to get finance. If you want to
1: pay 15 18 percent, which by the way, I'm not. I'm, not, it's I'm, not, I'm like, not speaking against. Yeah, but um, but I do know at once one company that got their half a million dollar plus. In fact I know two companies have got their half a million dollar plus claims declined in the last few months. Yeah. So I don't think that this is the sure thing maybe yeah. at once was. I think I think um Airtasker may have been taken to I court they were
0: too big, some Because we, we haven't had this for years. Oh, no, I mean, you, you were, can claim it. I thought we get it to a size and it's really hard to There's claim no it. There's no size. I oh, think really? ComBank and Telstra are claiming oh, the really? R&D tax incentive. I thought it's super hard to claim
1: it. No, uh, but once you start paying tax, it's an offset, right? Oh, once, and okay. once you pass 100 mil of revenue. so I, I, You know what? I'm going to find out the details and we'll do a little episode on this because yeah, for it, sure. it'll be, this is a really good topic. Yeah, so why don't we
0: go to I mean, a super quick break? That was a great chat and we'll get into our meaty stories next. Adir, what's your experience been with SEO across all the businesses you've worked with?
1: Well, I actually had an agency that did SEO at one point in time. And so through that, I I was not the SEO guy. And through that, I got some insight into just how um, complicated and sophisticated SEO is. And since then, I've tried a variety of different people and solutions. And it's a bit of a mix and match for me. I don't have a very sharp answer for you on that. We're the same.
0: I reckon we've cycled through a dozen agencies before we discovered Portal Ventures. And these guys are the real deal. We actually use them at Luxury Escapes and our SEO traffic has jumped dramatically. We also use them at business called Bookwell, which I used to chair. And the SEO there was so good, we actually were able to sell the business to the global leader, almost purely based on how much organic traffic we had from SEO. The guys at Portal Ventures work with some of the best Australian marketplaces and e-commerce businesses, including Flipper, Programmer, Mad Pause, Camplify, and Autoguru. These guys are literally the best of the best. Exclusive to Contrarians listeners, the team at Portal will give you a free one-hour consultation if you mention Contrarians. To get in touch with Mike and the team, call them on 1300 121 261 or go to www.portal.ventures.
1: Uh, welcome back. I've has got a, a pretty interesting story. So one of your favorite retailers. Well, it's a lo- I have a love-hate relationship with this retailer, to be honest. I know we've spoken a bit about retailers in the last couple of weeks, yep. but it's reporting season, yeah. Absolutely. And the economy—no one knows what's going on in the economy, and there is no better bellwether for what's going on in the economy than looking at discretionary retail. That tells you more than I think anything else in the economy will tell you about. You can survey people about consumer sentiment, but that is like you know two steps removed. What what you really want to know is are people buying stuff? They maybe yep. they don't necessarily discretionary need today. spend. Yeah, discretionary spend. And so, one of the most interesting retailers for that is Nick Scarley. So, Nick Scarley is an old business. I don't know how old it is. It could be 50 years old. Yeah. Nick, the Nick in Nick Scarley, I don't know. I think he's still alive. He, he doesn't know. run it, though. It's his son. His son, son runs, runs it. Is it Anthony Scarley? I'm not sure about his name. And um, But yes, it's a, his son. And um, and so, they own, uh, he's giving you a thumbs, thumbs up. You're very, you know. You've got names and dates as a you've cornered that marker. <laughs> like, do you notice that when I spoke to you last week about your everything to do with anniversaries? Very good. You knew your wedding anniversary. That's good. You also knew the specific date that you met your wife. That's good. You knew the specific date you started Luxury Escapes. Whenever we talk about a date, you've got it nailed. And also, names you're very good on names. I'm terrible with names and faces. I met the yeah. well, first I, time. Oh, first time? Yeah, first time. Tenth time. Ten times? Oh, if I – I need twice. If I see people out of context yeah, within the first five or six times that I've met them, I'm no possibility of recognising them. Do, like, do you
0: go through, like, ask them questions, trying to, like, back backslide, so like a detective, one of those uh, poro shows, I, trying to work out how hey, you know knew this person?
1: I have mastered the art of – the perfect level of familiarity when I, when I don't know who I'm talking to. So not too familiar, not too unfamiliar. Have you used this on me before? all bases. What's yeah, name? You used this on me before I used it on you? I think um, – I think that I've not used it on you because We haven't seen each other out of context directly. No, because like we knew each other somewhat and then yeah. we started doing this podcast. Yeah. And now I know you so well. well I, I, hope I you recognize know me now. you anywhere, right? Because yeah. <laughs> I said it, But um but it is very problematic. Anyway, we can talk about my personal problems at some other time. Let's <laughs> talk about Nick Scarly. So no, so Nick Scarly is um is the, the eponymous brand and plush. They bought plush. Yep. And plush is bigger than Nick Scarley, isn't it? Plush is not bigger than Nick's More Scali, stores, maybe smaller revenue. I can tell you the answer to that because it's very unusual for me to have any documentation in front of me whatsoever. But There's not to a massive sho- pile of papers there. I wanted to show you – I've got like six papers. I wanted Incredible. to show you that – you can say we've got a massive pile because we're not videoing this episode. So <laughs> nobody will know if you're like talking it The table's about, about to, to collapse on the weight of that paper. Somewhere, what, so I know I've talked about Bear and Joey a few times and I'm talking about them again, but they've produced they, – basically I talk about them because they send me research. Yeah. And the guy that did this piece of research is Peter Marks, which is another good consumer thing. One of you know what? One of these investment banks should sponsor our podcast. 100% Send they me should. their research. We'll even get them in and talk to them because it'll be very interesting. But for the time being, until that happens, I'm just going to keep using Bear and Joey stuff because they sent it to me. Well, JP Morgan just started sponsoring Acquired. Yes, season. I saw that. I saw that. And so somewhere in here is the number of stores. But what I can tell you about the stores is There's about 55 plushers and I think a few less Nick Galley's. They haven't really? increased. Their number of stores. Plush, I remember that Plush increased one store in the last half, and yep. Nick Scully increased no stores. Yeah. So when they do like for like, genuine, I think they shut one and opened one, so yep. it ended up neutral. So it's it's like for like is is not. Just, just, say that, just say that. That's on
0: that point. It's a really good point. When you're looking at retail store based businesses, you need to look at same store sales because you don't want to, Well, you need to look at both. But if you if you're a store that has 100, a hundred chain that has hundred stores and suddenly you open another fifty stores and you grow up thirty percent, that's actually bad. Because you've grown store, you've grown revenue by less than you've grown stores. So you yes. want to look at really same store growth, which That's is right. which is adjusting, a bit like per capita GDP, it's adjusting for the increase in store numbers.
1: But also the thing about opening stores is it's like salespeople. There's a ramp up period. Yeah. And so if someone, if you say we've got 40 stores and now we've got 50. You can't expect that you're going to get a 25% increase in sales from the extra 10 for some period yep. of time. Like, there's a ramp-up. Yeah, sure. I mean, salespeople, I don't know about here, but in enterprise sales, you, you can't really expect them to be hitting full speed for yeah, three months. months. We do that.
0: We expect that three, three to six, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, if there's oh, – it can take like five years to reach – if you look at sort of our top couple of people, they're sort of five, six-year tenure. So to get, become really good, it's, it's a number of years.
1: If you're still making
0: excuses after sales, so if you hire a person- I mean the best of the best. I'm not talking about getting to a ramp so up.
1: I, this is my rule. If you're hiring a person in enterprise sales yep. and you're still making excuses about why they're so hopeless at the end of three months, they should be fired. Oh, 100%, 100%. But you cannot expect them to be performing- at full speed for the first six months. Yeah. But after three you should be confident you made the right choice. The biggest mistakes I made that took me a long time to learn were were hanging on to people, hoping that they would change yep. on a wing and a prayer, like never it happens. Never, happens. never happens. It
0: never yep. happens. It never happens. As I said before, you never regret, like it's always it's super hard conversation to have, cause you, no one ever wants to, Founders are naturally empathetic. You never want to fire someone, but you're usually doing them and the business a favor. And it's one of the great, the toughest jobs of a, of a, any manager, not just a founder and CEO, is is doing the hard thing for you, but the right thing for the business and the person. Because sure. nobody wants to be stuck in a job where they're not they're not having a good time, they're not performing, and it's not the right job for them.
1: Oh, you know, people that are failing in jobs, they need to go and find another job because there is no happiness in life. Yeah. Failing at a job, I totally agree with you. So Nick Scarley in the half, were like up a little bit on revenue. I thought they were down. No, they were up a bit, but flat on – down slightly on a like-for-like like basis. Oh, okay. But it was, let's call it flat. Let's call it flat. I think – I saw it was actually down 29% revenue and
0: 20% profit. So, so. You're right.
1: So, I should, I should differentiate. So, I'm going to talk about revenue. But the first thing I look at is written sales. And because written sales is – they break this out, which is very good and very helpful. So, revenue is – they book revenue when they ship orders. Which is the right way to do it. Yeah. But often there's a lag in shipping orders. It should be pretty – the cycle should be consistent, shouldn't it? No. So I'll tell you why it's not. In fact, this is a really good point that you've raised. So they were basically flat on written orders half on half. The reason the revenue is down so much is because in the first half of 23, they had this massive COVID overhang because of supply chain issues predominantly, Uh, where they had – the same number of written orders that had been made, but they just couldn't del- they couldn't deliver anything yeah. in the previous periods. Yeah. So they delivered it's a ton of thing. stuff. It's it's a they- canning thing, yeah. And so I think like for like is what a- was cash flow. Like? That's probably tells you the story. Yes, it's exactly. steady. And they're even more um, direct than that because what they say to you say is this half's um, revenue performance is more consistent with. What we would typically write in order volume yep. for that period. So I think this is a pretty good number to take as this is what businesses usually slice for this makes kind of sense. thing. Yeah, I mean that was one of the that was one of the big issues that you know made it very hard to compare is that there was this yep. huge shipping overhang right. that well, that explains because shares part. are up twenty percent to a two year high. And so, you're like, why well, have the shares gone up when it's fallen 20, twenty? Yeah, percent not make any sense, so. Yeah, and so let me talk about some stuff that I think is important to understand what I would say is input metrics. And by input metrics, I mean it's easy to look at revenue. That's an output metric. That's what yep. you can say. And you can look at cash. We'll talk about that. But what you really want to know in business is what metrics can I look at that are going to be predictive of my financial performance in the future? Yeah, And one of those things is, um, what is what are the number of orders that I'm writing per store? That might be a, something interesting to look at. Or um, or what is the order value? Average order value? Or average yeah, average basket order size value, average basket size. And so let me tell you some things about Nick Scully because this is very helpfully broken out by Baron Joey in their report. So another
0: one is, which you can't use for these guys, but for online business conversion rate. So what, and, or churn rate if you're a SaaS business. Is your churn going up or down? Is a really big one. And yes, for an absolutely. e-commerce business, what, what are you converting like? How, how strong is your brand?
1: That, absolutely. And so let me tell you about Nick Scully. But, uh, as I said, like I'm pulling this directly out of a Baron Joey report. Yeah. So if you look at their orders per store, and what they do is they make 100 – they index it to 100 in the first half of 2019. Yeah. So what's that, four, four years ago? And, and they, so at the moment, in the first half of 2024, it's up 10% on orders per store relative to where it was in yep. 2019. That's good. That's a good outcome. Like, it means not, the stores are growing not only from inflation – more customers. More cu- People are buying more stuff in each store. But it's not the Atlassian thing where Atlassian's customers aren't
0: growing. They're getting more out That's of each right. customer. That's this right. This is a better story because they're getting more customers.
1: Now, I will say in the second half of 2021, which is when lockdown ended, COVID. first, second yeah. half... They they were up 35 and 37% compared to the index. So they're down from that, but they're still up 10% and Barron Joey's got them forecast continuing to rise average orders per store, which is great. You've got to take the trend line from pre-COVID. I think you've got to ignore those COVID insanity years. Agreed, agreed. And what was interesting, yeah, exactly. And so the other thing they look at is what is the number of written orders relative to where they were at that same period? So across the business, like what are we looking at? And basically what what... where we are at today, is they are writing 33% more orders than what they were writing in the first half of 2019. Yeah, so, that's great. a big increase. So yeah, so yeah. this is a business that on the right metrics is heading in the right direction. So if you look at their share price, and I, I like to look at
0: pre-COVID share price and what's happened, because you see you, COVID or everything sort of went, went haywire, mm-hmm. but they're basically double their pre-COVID share price or their market cap, which is pretty incredible. And they're five times off their COVID lows. But forget about COVID lows, but to be double pre-COVID and compare that to Harvey Norman, who they're not direct competitors, but there's a degree of similarity there. Uh, Both sell furniture. Harvey Norman's a franchise model. so a bit different, but uh, Harvey Norman's basically... Back to pre-COVID, so they've done okay. Yeah. It's not Jerry and Katie have done a pretty decent job, but but Nick
1: Scully's double. That's done an incredible job. Well, this business is performing better than pre-COVID, and I'll tell yeah. you why. Absolutely, it is. And the other, the other reason that was completely smashed in COVID is even today, like six percent of their sales are online. This yeah. is an in-store business. And to answer your question about um, Nick Scully versus Plush, Nick Scully is a three times bigger brand oh, much bigger. than Plush. Okay, so it's it's much. I'm mean, here it's a much material. higher price point. So. Well, one of the greatest acquisitions I can think of in recent times in retail was Nick Scali buying Plush okay. because they got amazing scale benefits from that transaction yep. that drove their gross profit significantly in the right direction. And so what we're talking about here is a business that booked $227 million of revenue in the half. So it's a pretty big business. business. Not huge though, but decent. Yeah, and I think my guess is that Like last year, the half was skewed because of what we just talked about with revenue, the half is skewed 60-40 to the front half versus yep. the back half. I think it's going to be about 50, 50 this So they year. trade on
0: they trade on about a two and a half times revenue. Like well, that's not what they trade on. They trade on a, probably a PE Why multiple. Why are you quoting
1: but, revenue multiple? This is a way to get me no, to stand just, up I, and walk out of the <laughs> room. Why are you quoting revenue I'm just multiples? It as a benchmark of what? Uh, a benchmark of what? How do you use a number that is irrelevant to valuation and find a multiple of well, it? The only reason I'm, I'm using it, you, you listen to hear me out. Right. So compare it to our
0: friends, our great friends at Kogan who. Have about half the valuation, but have a lot more revenue or yeah. a lot more sales. So that's why I'm, and we're going to get to margins in a second, and that flows to EBITDA. So I'm just building up. Oh, you're story, trying to compare. you to- trying
1: to compare this to a Kogan.
0: Yeah. Okay. And this is, and we'll talk about why this is in many, why the market values is at one point two and values Kogan at five hundred. And that's Kogan still been at five fifty. Kogan's been a great story, I should add. But there's some really interesting features of this business that don't exist on online businesses.
1: Yeah. Listen, I completely agree with that comment and I'm going to talk about some of those things now okay so um so one thing that exists in this business which is called the direct to consumer advantage because their furniture is their own they're their brand yeah like yeah they're not selling other people's stuff in their stores is their gross margin has risen to 66 percent yeah now that is almost that a dear levels of happiness. <laughs> like 70 is glory in the yep. you know, like I know quite a bit about this space. Like 70% would be a fantastic margin for a premium product. Nick Scully does have an advantage. I'm gonna say something and then hopefully they're gonna sue me for saying this because it's my <laughs> personal opinion. I think the price of the furniture that they sell, which is let's say two and a half to five thousand dollar sofas. Yeah, the price of the furniture to me exceeds the construction quality of that's, the furniture.
0: That's a definition of a luxury good. Where you pay more than, a premium good is where you're getting a better product for a yeah. higher
1: price, and a luxury good. Let's call it a Louis Vuitton handbag. Is ex- Louis Vuitton handbags ten grand? Well, maybe you're pushing me to edge ever closer to defamation. But like, <laughs> what what I mean is when I when I you buy know businesses
0: can't sue for defamation. You
1: clear here? Oh, is that right? I'm yeah, okay. 100%. All right. So let me tell you my opinion here. But also, I think this is a great business. And so, but my view is, if you buy a Sorry, business above ten staff, I think is, is that right? Yeah. Okay. So um, it's handy to have a lawyer on this podcast. <laughs> Nobody has ever said it's handy to have a lawyer dot dot dot, except, <laughs> except for in a courtroom. <laughs> and but I'll say also on this podcast. And so um, and so um, if I buy a Hermes handbag, which is not going to happen, you might say I'm paying much more for the handbag than the materials. You can't even buy one. Hermes is All right, like I get a 20-year waiting list. All right, I get it. Maybe you could. I you want know. to prove to you that I can buy one, so I have to figure out a way to get one, okay? And <laughs> then I'm going to bring it and show you that i <laughs> yeah, bought one. That'd be impressive. Um, and so, one of my friends has yeah. been waiting literally 10 years for one right. of these. Challenge accepted. And so the material, though, is extremely high quality. And so, yes, it's a premium good, and you're not really paying for the materials, but there's this bar that it, that it gets over on quality. You're you're about Hermes. You're Hermes. Hermes, yeah,
0: yeah. Grace, yeah, or Kelly Bags.
1: But when I go and look and turn uh, Nick Scully couch over and look at what it's made out of and how it's made, I feel like they are really getting a very high price Relative to my view of the construction, so as part material of this of research, product. you actually
0: went to a Nickskaya store and flipped a catch.
1: Well, I would do things like that anyway because yeah. I'm very interested in this category. That is dedication to this pod, and so I would walk through well, Australia's <laughs> fastest growing business because of this kind of thing. That's well, maybe, and so I'd look at what's in the furniture. Like you, try, you can work out is it um, high density foam or lower density <laughs> foams, and like uh, what are they using to actually make it? Are they using solid timber? Like I couldn't find solid timber. They might be in there, but not what the bits that I could look at. Yeah, and so I think they're getting a really good price. And that's one of the reasons they're getting 66% margins. So we talk about, we've talked about IBRIX powers, yep. and this is feels like it's a brand play. A
0: 100% yes. It is a brand play. Maybe a bit of scale because they can manufacture in China and get low cost, and they can hence. But so it's combination of scale and brand, it feels like.
1: Yeah, I, I think the scale advantage they got here is they could get their gross margins from. 62 or 63 percent up to 66 percent by buying plush yeah that was a great transaction i think they bought it at like an enterprise value to ebitda which is a pretty good measure yeah. like take out the depreciation amortization yeah. which will be predominantly store depreciation a yeah. business like plush yeah and um the way i would do it is i would do it's getting a bit technical but if i said what's this business really doing which is how i look at it I will take out the depreciation and amortisation because that's effectively you doing a non-cash calculation of money you've paid in the past for stores and fit-outs. I don't love that, by the way. I haven't finished. And then what I'll put in is the current year's CapEx. So how much money am I spending today buying and fitting out stores? Yeah, fair enough. And I'll take out what I'm depreciating in the past yeah. because sometimes there's a mismatch. Often they, sh- they should be roughly the same. To be honest, if it's, yeah. it, they might, it might be higher currently if it's a growing business. Yeah. Actually, scale is lower yeah. because they're not getting store growth right yeah. now. And so- can what we did, s-
0: So can we still want you talk about, what, about enterprise value or EV. Yeah, yeah. Some of our listeners probably don't know what EV is. Yeah, can you just
1: quickly talk. explain what enterprise value is and why it's important? So technically what it basically is, I would say, is that you get the balance sheet which is so cash. what I own and what I owe. Yeah, And you try and say, let's get rid of the cash and let's get rid of the debt. Yeah. And the way I would work out EV is a more complex calculation because like, that's a simple way of doing it. Yeah. But if I'm really going to value a business, I'll say, let's look at all of the assets on the balance sheet and let's think about what I could get for each of these things if I had to liquidate them. So, you get intangibles, you Well, that's gone. Well, intangibles yeah. and goodwill, zero. Yeah. But, like stock, for example, I might multiply stock by 0.25 and say, in a fire sale, there's no way I'm getting less than that. Yeah. And so that's a fire sale. And then, but cash will be a dollar. Yeah. And then negative, and you neg debt off or you add debt or whatever. Well, debt, I'll say a debt d- debt's a dollar for a yeah. dollar. So let's ne- subtract that from the cash. And, yeah. and then I'll work out a real, my view of. You know, what could you – what's the liquidation value of this business? Yep. And to me, that's what the balance sheet's worth. Yep. But enterprise value is often simpler than that. It's just cash-free, debt-free. Yeah. And so that's what they're talking about. And so what, what I think is – so if I go and spend $10 million on store fit-outs this year, that $10 million – it's not going to hit my profit and loss. What's going to hit my profit and loss is all of the value of stuff that I've spent on stores in the past and how much of that am I expensing on de- depreciation this year. It's because you depreciate. So you buy a store or you fit out a I store. I do a fit out and I depreciate. And it takes 10 years to depreciate Or five years, I think. Or, whatever or six, it whatever it is. Yeah. And so I don't like that because it's more interesting for me to say, let's get rid of all of that. Let's take that out. But let's put back in this year's spend. And just to harp on this, the yeah. reason is because – um, if I'm a growing business, I'll be spending more this year than, I, than I'm depreciating. Yeah. If I'm flat, it will be the same. And if I'm growing stores more slowly, the number will be lower this year than I'm depreciating for past years. Yeah. Nick Scully lower for the reasons I just said. They've had net store growth yeah. of one. Yeah. Sure. And so, um, and so I think they bought Plush on an enterprise value to EBITDA number yeah. of three. <laughs> I think that's what they paid for Plush. It's yeah. a great transaction. Yeah. And they got to increase – their gross margins across their entire business because of scale. So imagine these guys trade on EV, EBITDA of probably what, ten or twelve or something. Or yeah, so business. I
0: think um, I can tell you what they are. So just that we talk about EB to EBITDA. So basically, what we're doing there is we're looking at the effectively the cash free, debt free value of a business, and then we're looking at EBITDA, which strips out sort of non cash stuff, so like depreciation. So that's why people tend to use when you're valuing it if you're selling your startup or your scaled up business. You tend to – generally people, instead of using a PE multiple, they tend to use an EBITDA multiple, which is pretty common in anything but sort of publicly listed companies.
1: That's right. And so according to Baron Joey's research, they think that FY24 is is going to trade – this is before the 10 – how much did they increase? 6% or something when they released the results. So this is before the 6%. They think that FY24 will be a 6.5 EBITDA. So they basically got this great – arbitrage when they bought the
0: plush multiple business ar- it's called multiple arbitrage so what we're talking about multiple arbitrage before and then what happens is when you've got a business trading on a call it a price earnings multiple of 30 and you buy a business on a price earnings multiple of five that's what's known as earnings arbitrage so you get their earnings in the market marks it up six times
1: because they, they bang you at 30 times so eventually the music stops so if you buy a business with five million dollars of earnings yeah and you buy it at six times so yep. you pay 30 mil but your business is trading on 12 times, immediately that $30 million transaction will be valued inside your business at $60 million. And you've just created $30 million of value out of thin air. Public companies love doing
0: stuff like that. (laughs) That happens till it doesn't. So public companies will get away with doing this for a while and then eventually the music
1: stops they run out of stuff to buy, essentially. Yeah, but it can last for a long time. And so, as I said, they're trading, Barranjo thinks they're going to trade at six point time, five, five times EV to EBITDA, and at a 5% dividend yield, which is pretty healthy, a 5% yeah. fully frank dividend yield. So what I love about this business is that... So there's are,
0: one other point. I think they probably have a bit of cornered resource and that they presumably either, like, may own the factories but have great relationships with factories in China, presumably making this stuff. So there's a bit of cornered resource there as well, which is helpful.
1: I think they might make some of it in Australia. Oh, because, really? Yeah, I okay. think they might make some of it in Australia. Even better? I think they've got it. So I think... One of the definitions of a cornered resource, in my book, yep. is direct to consumer e-commerce. And let me tell you why I think that's a cornered resource. If you want a Nick Scarley sofa, you can buy it from Nick Scarley. Yep. Nobody compete ag- can compete against them on price. There is no way that you can say I'm going to go somewhere else and buy this sofa on sale. Yep. It's their way or the highway. You buy from Nick Scarley. Yep. That is one of the things I love about direct to consumer e-commerce. Yep. You're not competing against search engines. Yeah. So I love that. It's brand. Yeah, that's, but it's not just brand because if I'm ESOP, I've got lots of advantages. Yeah. But I, but I don't have the cornered resource advantage, which is you no, can, no. I don't have to buy it just from my own website or my own stores. You can buy it from Adore Beauty. Yeah, for sure. And so Nick Scully, you can only buy it from Nick Scully. Yeah. So I think there's a huge yeah. advantage in Absolutely. that. Absolutely. What's amazing about this business is like, according to my calculations, like these guys, if you basically go and say, what what is the – Take out, um, like, take out the depreciation and amortization. Yeah. But put back in the capex that they've spent this year. Yeah. I think that the margin of that they're keeping pre-tax is like thirty-five percent. Yeah. It's just an unbelievable business. Yeah. Their NPAT margin, so net profit after tax that they report, is nineteen percent. <laughs> That's incredible, <laughs> That's right? Crazy, it's yeah. incredible for like a hard goods business, and. Um, And really, like like, the goods. Look at look at LVMH as a
0: luxury. It's it's for a luxury business, it's not that good. But for a non-luxury business, unbelievable. That's that's the beauty of having creating a brand and creating a luxury brand, which they sort of have done. Is you're convincing people to pay more than something's worth because they have this other intrinsic feeling. Presumably, you buy like I'm I'm probably not a customer for them because you know my views on luxury goods generally. But people buy luxury goods because they perceive some other sort of innate pleasure they get from overpaying for something and you obviously know I hate overpaying for stuff so I'm, I'm like I'm I very much like buying premium goods yeah. which could be a an eye watch or a whatever because I think I get great utility from it but I don't like buying luxury goods like this like that's why I'm not going to be buying an LVmh man bag
1: because I'd rather chop my own arm off I know but this isn't luxury I mean and don't chop your arms off last episode, <laughs> last episode we talked about losing your legs and something and now we're going and chopping arms off <laughs> I think we should try and keep limbs for one <laughs> one full episode at least so I, I think this is not a, the thing is I take what your point is but this is very much mid-market this is average people regular people buying furniture you're paying $5,000 for a couch well but they're mostly not paying $5,000 for a couch they're probably mostly paying two and a half or $3,000 oh, right. for that's a that's couch. it sits below king furniture yeah. it's like this is mass market I mean, stuff there's a
0: lot of, I think there's a lot of really bespoke stuff. You can pay like fifty, hundred k for oh, this for stuff. For
1: sure, can't this is mass market, and and so their average revenue per store is like two million dollars for the half. Yep, it's pretty amazing. Two million? That can't be right. I'm telling you, they got well, our a- store did.
0: Our, we've got a store. We did $3 million last month. So that doesn't make sense that they could be doing so much less revenue but than it, us in a it, much bigger store. Oh, but you're – think of this, everything – And yes, is, they got bigger margins. I get that.
1: They've got 108 stores and they did $227 million of revenue. That it's not a complicated calculation. really low but revenue you store. That you're, no, but it's not because the thing is that you're selling these tens of thousands of dollar deals and you're not keeping that money. It's not your money. No, I get the margin differential for sure. It, but
0: it's, you can't compare selling – $2 million sounds – That sounds too low. These these are massive stores.
1: McDonald's do way more than that. No, maybe the way to think about it like this, is: if I take... There's no other way I can do this calculation. There's $227 million of revenue. There's 108 stores. That's $2 million of revenue per store. And so... Th- that was my calculation. The ima- as I said to you, only six percent of this revenue is online. So, yep. fourteen million dollars of online revenue. It's a heavily store-based business yep. delivering eighty million dollars of free cash on two hundred and twenty-seven million dollars of yep. revenue. I think the real free cash number is seventy million dollars. I work it out own. my own way, but it's still like, an incredible number. And this so, is for a half as well, isn't it? It's no even. A... It's for a half. For a half. And so, what you're getting, absolutely cash machine. This business. Yeah, what you're getting with this business is a business that is not really growing right now. What's interesting is, and I want to talk about this with the economy and finish off on this point, what you're getting is a business that's relatively flat on growth. Like, you're not going to get a growth business here, okay? I think it's going to grow a few percent a year for the next year or two. But you're getting a business that says, we will take a dollar and we will go and effectively give you 20 or 25 cents of it as cash at the end of that process. That is an incredible business that is able to do that at this kind of 200, let's call it 450 to $500 million a year of revenue. They say that they've still got significant upside left in store rollouts, maybe another 50%. It could be true. I think like this business is not a cheap business. Like You're not getting this for a bargain. But I think this might be one of the Best operated, highly quality, high quality discretionary retail businesses in Australia. I don't want to
0: burst your bubble, but there was a guy called Warren
1: Buffett who invested in a business that was pretty
0: similar about sixty years ago. Do you remember Nebraska Furniture Mart? It was. I can't say I've ever shopped from Nebraska Furniture Mart. Well, this was a real. This is probably the, the iconic one of the iconic Warren Buffett stories. So, this business was founded in nineteen thirty seven by a Belarusian called Rose Bloomkin. I think Warren okay. called her Mrs. B. She lived to like be one hundred and three. Buffett bought in. Buffett bought a or Berkshire bought a majority stake in 1983. It was one of his best. I think he paid 60 million for it. It's worth well and truly in the billions now. And this hundred-year-old lady was literally still working the floor when she was 100. So she and she's it's classic. I do. I have
1: heard the story of this business.
0: So and this same same business. Warren Buffett loved it for the same reason you love this business. Great margins, and they I presume had the same. This is 100 years ago, but same same business. So it's these and furniture is one of the last great remaining areas of high margin. Most margins have been wither away in so many different areas. Can I give you actually a question for you? Absolutely true. What, what, what do seen? you think, you told me this is one of the highest margin businesses you've seen. I, mm. I can give you a higher margin. I'm not talking about LVMH. A higher margin sector. What do you think the highest margin sector in Australia is? I had no idea until last week.
1: You mean highest margin uh, as- Retail, retail sector. Highest margin as keeping the most- free- Gross margin, gross margin. A highest gross margin yeah. business? gross margin business. Uh, no, I think something like- uh, the stuff that Aesop sells,
0: I think. Well, Aesop would be really high. Um, I was sitting. I was at cricket. I was scoring. You know, when you score yeah, for cricket, like sure go. The, I, the dot dot ball scoring. You yeah, score with another guy from the other team, a guy yep. from the other team. And the guy I was sitting next to, I was asking him what he does, and he owns this really impressive jewellery business. So, and this is he doesn't own a jeweller. He owns like he manufactures the jewellery in Thailand or stuff. That so really sounds like a really good business. Yeah, really good guy. And I, I was sort of talking a bit more about it. I said, yep. oh. What kind of margins that he doesn't own the retail side, but he obviously sells to them. And what kind of margins do jewelry stores own? He goes, Oh, about eighty, ninety percent. I had oh, no idea is great, of the margin of jewelry yes, stores. That
1: is a great call. Absolutely. Well, you know, I know you're fixated on luxury goods, but you know, <laughs> Tiffany's is charging three or four times anybody else's price yeah. for their brand and box and yeah. for the promise that they make. But this is I'm talking like like what Michael are they running Ninety nine percent margins, gross margins.
0: Have to be. Like, well, obviously, LVMH bought Tiffany. Remember, he remember the LVMH Tiffany yeah. saga. So, LVMH, I think, made it put a bid for Tiffany uh, in just before COVID. COVID yeah. happened. They and typical Bernard know style renegotiated this yeah. deal. So, he said, oh, no, "I'm not buying you guys anymore." They and of course, they basically whittled them down and paid a couple of billion dollars. I think they paid fifteen billion ish, that kind of range. And and Bernard put one of his kids in charge. And that, done its incredible job basically double the size of the business yeah. that. They've, they've done all these great partnerships and it's For typical and sure. it shows that we talked a little bit about lvmh and they're obviously the bernard grew basically growing this business through acquisition over and started with dior and then went to LVMH, all this kind of stuff and there's the acquired episodes that iconic acquired episode that you told me about uh, but the the tiffany's is a great example of how they're not just he's not just an acquirer he's actually re, they're really good operators at lvmh as well they do it. Unbelievable! They buy business as well. They don't just multiple arbitrage; they actually run them
1: better than the person who owned it previously as well. Which is oh, why they such a great That's business. why. That's because he's got the magic. So I'm going to tell you a few key points to finish this off. The first is, you know, this post-COVID race to stores, post-lockdown race to stores. So it's
0: people to start stores,
1: or people to shoppers going. People to stores. shoppers going to stores, yep. and it was a flood. Yep, that was bad for stores. Why? They sold a lot of stuff. I'll tell you what happened to Nick Scully's margins in the second half of 22 and the first half yep. of 23. It went from its – so Nick Scully used to be a 63% gross, 62, 63% gross margin business. It's now, I I would call it a sick, close enough to a 66, yeah. 65, 66%. Yeah. In that period, it dropped to 61% yep. at one stage, and that is because it was so it. hard to get stuff. Yeah. It was – so hard to get stuff shipped, the demand outstripped supply. And so one of the reasons that they had this huge boost in revenue in the first half of last year because of this overhang of orders, like they were getting these orders and the supply chain problems were slashing their margins as well. So actually too much demand is not as good as people think it is. That was not good for them. They have said that they think that operating conditions for their business in terms of logistics, supply chain, and gross margins will be significantly better than pre-COVID. Yeah. So that's impressive. And the the other graph I want to show you, which people can't see, but I'm going to show you. Look at, they've got a graph, Baron Joey's got a graph in their deck, which shows the freight costs from Asia to Europe and the US. Yeah. It and what it looks heaven. like. And yeah, and if you look at this graph, basically in January 2024, they just rocket. Oh, really? And that is all because of... The um, Red Sea thing. The Red Sea thing. Yep. They rock it. Like they go from, like the far east to the U.S. West Coast. Yep. Goes from what looks like about fifteen hundred.
0: That's weird because they're not going. They go. They don't go via the Dead Sea. Europe that gets hit by the Dead Sea thing. The U.S. Is actually.
1: So the West from. Coast of U.S. has gone from like fifteen hundred, some things to, close to four thousand.
0: And yeah, but
1: still well below COVID levels. The far east, post COVID, levels. northern. Oh, it's it's. Well, COVID is not on here. This starts at January
0: 2023.
1: Yeah. Far east to North Europe, I mean, that's increased even more. Yeah, That's gone from like, at the end of 2023, it was down at kind of 1,000. Yeah. It's now at more than 4,000. Yeah. And what Nick Scully has said is that this has not affected shipping to Australia and Asia at this point in time in the same way. Yeah. So so Nick Scully is not suffering the consequences of this Red Sea stuff. But let me finish with this last bit. So Scully. So this is brings back to closing the loop on discretionary retail as a marker for the economy. So what they said is that the first quarter of this financial year, July, August, September 2023, down. Yep. It was down 4% yep. or something. That was the iteration like. going
0: up and yep. – Down.
1: The second quarter, up. Yep. That's what created a flat outcome for the half. I
0: would have thought that December for a- – obviously great for discretionary retail and Christmas and yeah. all that kind of stuff, but I would have thought it's great for something like furniture. Well, it doesn't – Nick Scully doesn't seem to have a Christmas boom. Oh, exactly. I would have thought that actually probably yeah. negatively impacts them because you're not
1: buying that stuff in Christmas. Yeah, I think it has no – like I think their first half and their second half are almost the same. Yeah. Okay. They released an update on what the first – I think it was six weeks of like 2020 uh, – January. Yeah, of January. It must be the first weeks. Good, up a few yeah. percent. And so I think that um, this kind of all supports my theory that the economy is not as bad as it looks like. You've got record low unemployment, so... Interest rates are not going down. Yep. Well, we've said that in these horrible predictions you made me make. And, but, <laughs> they're not going down. And it feels pretty good. Yeah, it feels to me like the economy is relatively stable right now. No, I That's agree. That's what this feels to me. I want to change
0: topics quickly, because I saw a really interesting article in the journal, Wall Street Journal, about MBAs. Have you got an MBA?
1: An MBA. Yeah, I no, wasn't sure if you like, do not have an MBA. I mean, don't even have a business degree. I've got a medical degree. A medical. I remember maybe that I'm MBA. a doctor. You remember that? I, I know that. You mentioned don't try answer. and use those skills at any point in time. because <laughs> It may not be a great outcome, but yes, I was a doctor. Well, well, MBA is a
0: uh, um, been a much. It's basically a commerce degree. You come back as an undergrad. So MBAs are really invented for engineers who didn't. A bit like like, someone, like yourself, yeah. someone who who studied a scientific scientific based degree, and then wanted to become a manager essentially. So I created this MBA. Uh, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Uh, really interesting, uh, a couple of really interesting data points. Uh, Professor Henry Mintzberg called MBA graduates a menace to society and then he tracked 19, and Harvard Business School is probably considered the, the elite uh, MBA mm. program. I yep. Stanford,
1: Because M- they've got Morton. a
0: particular way of doing an MBA, right? Well, they they do ca-
1: these case study MBAs. Yeah, they're
0: co- I think they're all copy that now. But yeah. um, they basically said, Harvard. they looked at, H- HBS graduates uh, who are dubbed US business superstars since 1990 and found 10 of the 19 have suffered serious setbacks such as bankruptcy or the boot, and the records of another four, so that's 14, of the 19 were questionable. Then another couple of guys, Danny Miller um, and Gioie Zhu from uh, Montreal and Rhode Island uh, business schools, said uh, MBAs were noticeably worse at sustaining superior performance than non-MBA Executives, MBA graduates were more likely to expand their companies through acquisition rather than organic growth, sacrifice earnings and cash flow in the process, yet their pay rose faster than that of their counterparts who had outperformed them. Um, these employees tended to lift a swift jump in short term profits, followed by a decline that led to a fall in market value. Uh, yep. Have you got a view on MBAs generally? Do you. Uh, Obviously, you haven't done one. I thought you may have. Uh, but no, I did. I
1: went to the School of Bad right. Life Decisions. To, or very to good learn life decisions. To make your well, I took, you know, I, I'd say this seriously. I would say I started being interested in business as about, I don't know, a 12-year-old. Like yep. Literally, I started reading business books as a 12-year-old. Yeah. Um, until I was in, Until I was 40, I'm not sure I really knew what I was doing. Like I knew, I knew more and more stuff each time. But yep. if you say to me now, are you confident incredible success in that period. If you say, "Are you confident of doing X now?" Let's say making money. Yeah. I would say yes. I know how these things can make money. I know yep. what I need to do to get them to make money. I think that that, that was a twenty-five year period of learning for yep. me. Yeah. So I don't think I don't think it was easy to figure so that out. You, do so would you? That, that I say that because it leads into my thoughts on an MBA. Okay. So, what you just quoted is: what are the consequences of? hiring MBAs into corporations over the long term. I have no view on that. Like, I've got no reason to refute the data. I haven't seen the studies. That data could well be right. That data might be a subset of a larger data set, which is, in general, most people are value destructive (laughs) in enterprises over time yeah. and like only a few special people are what make the value increase and so MBAs are largely just a subset of the group of most yep. people that are value destructive uh, this is what I think about an MBA I have these two areas where I think uh, well I'll say a few there's a few ways I think it's advantageous one is if you are if you want to get particular executive jobs in corporations and want to move up yeah. it is definitely good to have an MBA on your resume so I think it's worthwhile in that respect I presume you mean from a really credible Credibility, yeah. So Melbourne it's Melbourne, Melbourne Uni or... Uh, I think Melbourne AMU Business or, School... Yeah, I ICU think or. Melbourne Business School, I think, is a great MBA. yeah. And so I think it's very credible to have that on your resume. Yeah. I think if you do the right MBA, EMBA, whatever you do, because like a lot of people are doing these executive MBAs yeah. now, um, which are very good, I think you they have good ability to make networks, yeah. to strengthen your networks. So that's another benefit of an yeah. MBA. Harvard MBA is a great networking Absolutely. tool. Absolutely. The way that I think it would have helped me beyond those two, like number one, I would never need because I'm not going to be an executive in a company. Yep. And number two, networks, I'm okay in networking. Yep. And so um, what I think would have helped me is there's this base level of knowledge that I, that really helps run businesses. Yep. One is understanding accounting, it's probably some marketing. I think I kind of worked that out. I was okay with that. Just some models for management and decision-making. And I think learning those things yep. is very important. And you can learn them in a commerce degree. Yeah. Well, MBA is a commerce degree. It's just a fancy name and you do it as a post I know, but lots of people do commerce degrees and then do MBAs. They shouldn't. Okay. Well, they do. I think if you do doing engineering For degree, the it first makes two perfect reasons. sense to yeah. do an MBA. And so I think like, it is really handy to learn those things. And if the way that you're going to be able to learn them quickly and efficiently is by doing an MBA, then I think that's useful. The difference between paying for a Harvard MBA and going over there and doing one at Melbourne Business School, which might be as good, is I think you do – I mean, taking away all the Harvard controversy at the moment, yeah. you do get what you pay for. Like, I think there you is – substitute
0: Harvard for Wharton, Penn, or like for, of for, the, for yeah, uh, and all this schools. stuff. Yeah, Stanford.
1: You um, – I think you're getting the brand benefit and the networking benefit that that provides. I they're, think that's what you're paying. Very like, in the US,
0: it's a couple hundred thousand dollars. Very in Australia, it's a hundred thousand plus. That and you also and there's also the the time out of work because you generally it's two years full time. I think often a lot of people do it after hours, which is probably.
1: In a way, a better way to do it, but um, it's but I'm hard. not a hater. A lot of people are haters of MBAs. You know, your mate Peter Thiel was like, "I'll pay you money to drop." Well, no, that out was that was the undergrad not MBAs. Whatever it is, though, he's he's a hater of univer- of tertiary education. Like, yeah. I'll pay you to drop out. Like, you know, it's easy to, and flippantly to say that and like, oh, Zuckerberg built a Facebook, Meta, and he yeah. dropped out of Bill whatever. Gates. Okay, yeah. fine. You know what? Like, as I keep saying, like, you know, Serena Williams became this great tennis player, and so did Venus with an overbearing father that forced them to do ABC. Don't try and be the outlier. Like That's how you can base your life. I think I constantly see founders who are really smart and are building businesses, but they just lack the basics, which is great for me. I come in and bring them those basics, right? Yep. But I think they would have really benefited from some academic knowledge about finance and business. Yep. I think there is value in these things personally.
0: I think there's some value. I think there's definitely value in an undergrad commerce degree, which I did. I did obviously a law commerce degree. I think there's if you've if done commerce, don't waste time on MBAs. And listen, I remember when I was at uni, I was speaking to the guy who taught the MBA and he said the same thing. He said, we designed this for engineering students, not for commerce students. You've done it already. So if you've got no. a commerce degree, forget about it. If you've got no degree, it's actually quite useful as well because as you said, it's, you get some benefit. There is a, it's a, it's a big expense and a lot of time. So, it's so
1: obviously, yeah. these studies
0: were based on business performance. It's a bit of a different thing. It's not, should you do an MBA or not? It's should you hire an MBA to run your business? That's a little bit different.
1: Yeah, and so. What I think about hiring an MBA to run your business is like the people you should hire to run your business are the people that are passionate about your business and are linking their sense of self-worth to the success of your business and, are, and you think are smart and good at making like decisions with imperfect information and are going to be committed to trying to build the wealth of the company i mean i think and then you then you can once you tick those boxes then you can go into like do you know what you're doing and what's your background <laughs> but i think those are the most important boxes to tick can i make one sort of like,
0: exception one thing i think the nba courses are amazing at is there's usually a negotiation course I'm not sure if you have done this but vicky medvec who's done some work with lux who who i think she teaches at one of the ivy's i'm not sure which mm. one uh she is the doyenne of negotiation she is an absolute force of nature i i I've never been more impressed by somebody than I have been impressed. She did a YPO negotiation yeah. one day thing. I got more out of that one day thing than I've ever got out of it. And, she's, and I came and got her to, to work with our, our team here. She char- so she did this YPO thing. She charges 100 grand a day.
1: Yeah. And
0: that's 100 grand. She gets to pitch to 100 CEOs who half of them will go, oh my God, this is amazing. Said, have you think of a better business strategy than getting paid to market your business? I've, I don't, I've never heard of anybody getting 100 grand a day to market. But she's so good that you pay it. She's unbelievable. It's actually and unbelievable. She is. I'd love to get on the show and just to speak. Cause I'm a to pay a hundred grand. No, she'll hopefully we'll try and convince her to do it for 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 free for us for half an hour. But, That'll be impressive. but they do that, and there's great, and there's some really great things. The most obvious things you talk, you talk about anchoring and BATNA and all this negotiation yeah. stuff. But, but the most important thing: do you do you make the first offer or don't make the first offer in negotiation?
1: I don't think I'm a. I don't think I'm the Negotiator that you should be basing your decision <laughs> on for reasons I'll explain. But do I make the first offer? It depends on the situation. I don't have any hard and fast rules. Her
0: rule side. is always make the first offer, yeah, anchor, anchor anchors, it, though. Anchor it. Yeah. Uh, and then she gives case studies and shows you. And she and the way she, negoti- she she's got this incredible, so I'd love to see i I love to I get her use, stories. Definitely,
1: I use I definitely, I think anchoring is important
0: 100%. And she uh, absolutely the way she does it is just she is so good that is uh, we've got to get her on. But and but that stuff, it's that stuff you get from the MBA that you especially Ivy MBA that you get the quality of of teachers and tutors at those colleges is actually next level. The Scott Galloway's who teaches at Stern mm. in, in New York. They are unbelievable, the the lecturers there. So I think there is definitely benefit. Or you can do like a an, I think it's called an uh, AMP. Like Harvard does two-month courses, which yeah, I've absolutely. heard are incredible, which is probably the best The trick is ground. to
1: work for a corporation and get them to pay for that, absolutely. which is mostly what happens.
0: And you got to find – the tough thing about those two-month courses is you've you got to go to Harvard or Boston for two months. And you don't need kids. Yeah. So most people do it, have kids at that sort of yeah. 5 to 15. That's yeah. it's really hard on the, on the family. That's probably the biggest challenge.
1: I think Some people would we'll say that as an upside. Yeah, that's certainly a challenge why I haven't done I one. I wouldn't. Is, uh, <laughs> Let me tell you about a, a negotiation, in my view. I think – I am not a very hard-nosed negotiator as a rule. Like, I'm not. Yep. Because I think an outcome where you get 60-40 upside with the other yep. party is better than an outcome of 90-10. 100%. 100%. And I think it's better because of my attitude towards living life. Like, yep. I much prefer just everyone to be happy and I've, I don't, I've got no, not, no greed gene in my body yep. and so I'd rather just everyone's happy and works together and his partners and there's so much money in this world. There's <laughs> plenty of upside for everyone. Well, you, want, you want win-wins.
0: You don't want win-losses. Win-losses don't help you or, the, or they help the person who's lost but they actually don't help you either. And I, I just got a great example. I won't give the example but we did a deal with someone six months ago and we actually got done in the deal. Like, we just did a, a dumb deal. We didn't yeah. have proper, inflation symmetry, and we did a bad deal, which happens. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, there's just a lot of bad blood now and we're going to end it as soon as we can or all this stuff because yeah. they just did us over. But had we been a more of a win-win deal, we'd be love to work with these people. So it's not as if you win from win-loss. You actually lose in a, usually a pretty short period. So Unless, uh,
1: There are some exceptions to that. I mean, if you're buying a business, let's say private equity is buying a business from private equity. Yeah. They are completely transactional human beings. There's going to be no continuity of the seller. There might be management continuity, but there'll be no seller continuity in the new entity. Then you're just trying to get it as cheaply as you possibly can versus someone trying to sell it for as much as they possibly can. To me, that is the very definition of just an unpleasant zero-sum game negotiation. I hate those There's situations. That's two
0: sophisticated parties unlikely to stuff up to a degree. Both, well,
1: I'm not sure about that. There's an awful lot. Well... There have been an awful lot of private equity, bad deals, privatisations of public companies. So I think we'll overestimate the sophistication. Like none of us us has a crystal ball except you maybe. And so so, uh, so what I think is there are a few of those negotiations in life, but mostly those are not the negotiations in life. And so therefore I've read – you know what I did to learn how to negotiate? I read two books. One book was called You Can Negotiate Anything (laughs) – not sure I agree with the title. My, well, they could have said, you can negotiate anything badly. That could be the end of that <laughs> title. It wasn't a bad book. And the other one is called Getting to Yes. Yep. That was a more interesting I've book. i heard Getting to Yes. That's a more interesting book. Yeah. And- you know, there are definitely some things you can learn because there are some commonalities between all negotiations. But I, I think that people with reputations like, you know, we talked about Barry Diller on the show a yeah. little while ago. He's got a reputation yeah. for just being a crazy tough negotiator. Yeah. That's not me. Yeah. I don't think I could ever be that person. I'm too – um, like my need to be liked is too overwhelming <laughs> for me to be that tough of but a but negotiator. I but I think the benefit of that
0: is, A, people want to deal with you. So you're. I'll do a deal with you because I know you're not going to rip my face off. So no. that's – but I think you just want to create in business, and build bonus right You want to create the best, and we're lucky here because not every business can do that. But luxury is we just try and create win-win, win-win, wins. So our business is based on hotels making money, customers getting a great deal, and we sit in the middle. So if we can achieve that, we create happiness for the customer, and the hotel makes the hotel owner makes money. So we have a win-win. Not every business can can do that in fairness, but that's why I love working here, is because. We're just all day. We're trying to create win wins for for people, and, and a good negotiator will, will bring in extra. And this is what Vicky's so great at. And teaching is you bring in extra. So you get to the bargaining zone and and the, and the, and the deals, all that kind of stuff. But people. There's the contentious points in negotiation, which is price, essentially. But there's lots of other stuff and call it – and I think what Vicky calls it story points, which – storytelling points, which are still important and make a big difference, but not contentious. And you've got to really – the good negotiators bring in those storytelling points and can make or create these win-wins.
1: I agree. I mean, I think my – the lessons that I would say that I've learned about negotiating is, you know, one of them is, I said, try and do 60-40, not 90-10. One of them is life is about relationships, not transactions. Yep. And so I did a deal selling a web uh, a um, search agency that I had. Yeah. And I sold it, and I was not going to continue in it. In fact, they wanted me to retain a small stake ongoing, and I was like, no, nah, I want to go to zero because yep. what's the point of having a five or ten percent stake? It's horrible in a private business. Yeah. And and we sold it, and then a year later, the guy came back to me that did the deal, and he said, you know. This was the most honest transaction that we've ever done. I'm like, yeah. why? And he said, because all the numbers that you told us about the business, what <laughs> it was going to do, and how it was going to perform—actually, yeah. it exceeded that. And yeah. you were totally transparent with the deal. Yeah. And I said, yeah, of course. Because <laughs> like now you're going to tell other people that I'm like yeah. that as well. Like life is relationships, it's not transactions. Yeah. So I think like you know being honest in deals. Usually, if you're dishonest, people will figure it out it will come back to bite you. Um, I think I've also learned that um that you should if possible if you're doing a deal with someone that was instrumental in building that business it is important to try and maintain a relationship with that person so you don't want to be too rough with them and you want to maintain because something will go wrong in that business at some point in time where you're going to want to speak to them and you need to have a party that wants to bend over backwards to try and help you succeed with this business subsequently same
0: reason how why leaving a business is so important for so if you're an employee in a business and you leave leaving well is so critical you can you can have a okay career at a business you leave well it's it, you'll be looked up really positively and you can by the same token you can have a, a great you can have a five-year career at a business and just leave badly and then it doesn't matter that your five year how good your five years was well, you people forget that so leaving well is exactly the same thing do the right thing give more notice than you need to work as hard as you can over that notice period and you always notice it and you always remember it.
1: Don't bag your old employer to the person you're
0: interviewing with.
1: Like if I hear someone... Like don't bag your girlfriend or your wife. That's that's the the stupidest thing ever. If I hear someone paying out... You know, I worked for this idiot boss, and da da da, and then the one before that was idiot. What <laughs> I know for sure. Is at some point they're going to think that I'm the idiot boss, yeah. and I will just not employ that person. I think yeah. it's a terrible idea to bag previous employers.
0: Yeah, I think on that idea. note, that was a great app. Shout out to our listeners who have made us th- certainly the fastest growing business pod in the country. Uh, we're two and a half x our audience in two months. So, and with great guests like Gav and Steve, who who came on last week. Even put a billboard of us on on the Westgate Freeway, which is which is super good oh, of him. Yeah, that was crazy. Uh, but yeah, thanks to our listeners again. Our listeners are our absolute best advocates. But well, I think we, during this pod, I've had uh mike mccallum sent me an episode saying he laughed like a hyena during last week's episode i had three messages during us filming of this episode uh obviously we don't film live uh but thanks well, i think we also had 15 20 comments this week so we we super appreciate and we appreciate people again and again the quiet guys say the same thing it's word of mouth that drives growth of pods really you can advertise as much as you want but it's really it's word of mouth it's it's our listeners who have done a huge favour to us by telling friends and that's the only way we grow our, our audience.
1: So I'm going to make these two comments about what's coming up on this podcast. One will be a surprise to you <laughs> and one will – I'm not sure if one will be. So the one that may or may not be a surprise is there are some guests that we're going to have on this podcast over the next two months that will be so interesting and I guarantee that no other podcast – Yeah that anyone has listened to that listens to this has ever heard these guests. Like yep. they are unusual people to get on a podcast and people will love it and what they've got to say is immensely interesting. Yep. So they're coming up. The other thing that may be more of a surprise to you is, do you know that we're, we'll be doing a live show <laughs> in March?
0: The famous live show? We're doing it in March. Okay, well, we'll talk I about organized it. I haven't organised it,
1: but it's happening in March. I'm away for a lot of March. In, so we're are you? A, I mean – a bunch of places. Anyway, we'll... we'll, we'll come oh, well, it up. may not be or Maybe they, I, mean, well, they, yeah, I was trying hard. to surprise you, but they may have backfired on me badly. <laughs>
0: so you're going somewhere next week. We'll, we'll keep that I'll a secret. I'll be away next week,
1: but... Oh, well, you
0: are obviously be recording. You'll have... You're going to... Remember your microphone this time?
1: Oh, well, no, we'll, I don't think I can record where I'm going. You can rowing. record. Oh, I, able we'll record. do it. We'll do it. We'll work it out. Yeah. We'll work that out. We'll work out a live show. We've got some great guests coming up in the next few weeks. Yeah. I'm really excited.
0: Yeah. And on that note, we'll, we'll say goodbye to everyone. I'm looking forward to uh, you speaking next week from wherever, wherever on earth you are. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir. If you want to submit a question for the show, please send a voice recording to Adam J. Schwab at Instagram. Today's show was produced by Mike Liberale. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Please give us a rating and don't forget to tell your friends. We'll be back next week for our weekly analysis of all things growth and tech.